Sir, we're picking up a signal from the planet. On screen. Sorry, sir, it's audio only, no visuals. Where does it come from, number one? It appears to be coming from a small landmass in the northern hemisphere of the planet. It identifies itself as coming from the University of Manchester. A university? That sounds promising. But, sir, they have a big dish pointed straight at us. Arm weapons and go to yellow alert. Let's not take any chances. They are identifying themselves as Jodrell Bank, sir. Hostile intent, unknown. Very well. I think we're ready for them, whatever they throw at us. Open a channel. Aye, sir. This is Captain Sam Lovell of the USS Merlin. Please respond. The Jodcast. Your indispensable guide to astronomy every month. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Hannah Thrall, and David Alton. The Jodcast. March issue. Hello and welcome to the March issue of the Jodcast. Thank you very much for downloading us and tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed our last two months' issues. Coming up this month, we have Stuart interviewing Dr. Helen Mason about her work on SOHO, Hannah interviewing Nick about his work on the recently discovered low-mass planet, and I interview Mario DiMaggio about his work at the new planetarium at Think Tank in Birmingham. So basically I showed up to work with a microphone. And, of course, we have your favourites. Tim O'Brien will be answering your questions in Ask an Astronomer. And Ian Morrison will be showing us around what's happening in March's night sky. But before all of that, the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, SuitSat detected by radio amateurs worldwide, new supernova detected in the nearby galaxy M100, the Spitzer satellite discovers evidence of planetary formation around hypergiant stars, the recurrent supernova RS Ophiuchi explodes after 21 years of quiescence. A new type of radio-emitting star has been discovered by an international team of astronomers. A short list of possible life-supporting stars has been published by the Carnegie Institute. And Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter begins firing its engines to put it into orbit. On February 3rd, the International Space Station was joined in orbit by a new satellite, a Russian all-land spacesuit which was thrown overboard by Valery Tokarev and William MacArthur, the current crew of the station. Rather than carrying a human, the suit was filled with amateur radio equipment used to transmit messages in a variety of languages until the batteries ran out. Nicknamed SuitSat-1, or Radio Sputnik, the project is sponsored by a group of volunteers known as the Amateur Radio on the ISS, whose aim is to encourage the interest of children in spaceflight and science in general. Transmissions from SuitSat were picked up by over 1,000 people worldwide before the batteries died in mid-February. More information can be found at suitsat.org. A bright supernova explosion was detected in the nearby galaxy M100 this month. The discovery was reported independently by Shoji Suzuki, Japan, M. Migliardi, Italy, on February the 7th. At the time, the supernova, known as SN2006X, was at magnitude 15.3, but it has since brightened to about magnitude 14. Although this is too faint to be seen with the naked eye, it is within range of many amateur telescopes. 2006X, so-called because it is the 24th supernova discovered this year, is of the class known as Type 1A supernovae, which occur in binary star systems. The first star in the pair reaches the end of its life, and evolves to become a smaller remnant known as a white dwarf. Then, later on, the second star reaches the end of its life, 
If this star becomes a large enough red giant, then material will flow from it and accrete onto the white dwarf. When enough material has built up on the white dwarf, the pressure and temperature become extreme enough that an explosion occurs, and this is what we see as a type 1a supernova. This is exciting because this type of supernova can help cosmologists learn about the distant universe. By studying nearby examples like this in detail, we can better interpret similar explosions seen at far greater distances towards the early universe. The Spitzer Space Telescope, an infrared observatory in orbit around the Earth, has found evidence of warm dust disks from which planets are thought to form around two hypergiant stars, a type of star thought to be inhospitable to planet formation. The results, published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters in February, suggest that the process by which planetary systems form may be more robust than previously thought. Extremely massive stars like these are very hot and bright and have strong surface winds which were thought to blow away protoplanetary disks before planets can actually begin to form. These two stars, located in the Large Magellanic Cloud, are 30 and 70 times the mass of our own Sun, and are so large that if they were placed where the Sun is, they would easily swallow the Earth. This type of star uses up its fuel very quickly, and generally explodes as a supernova after a few million years, destroying any planets which may have formed. Another type of explosion occurred on February the 12th, which sent astronomers around the world rushing to their telescopes. After a 21-year quiet period, the recurrent nova known as RS of Yukai has become active again. This event is the result of a thermonuclear explosion on the surface of a white dwarf in a binary system with a red giant. This explosion causes a shockwave to be set up in the wind from the red giant, which results in copious amounts of X-ray and radio emission. The event was first spotted by optical astronomers in Japan and reached a magnitude of 4.5, easily visible to the naked eye from a reasonably dark site. Currently, astronomers are following RS of Yuzhai in X-rays with the SWIFT satellite and at radio wavelengths with Merlin and the LA telescopes. Further observations are planned with Chandra and XMM satellites, as well as the VLBA radio telescope in the US. Observations will also take place with the European Network of Radio Telescopes, the EVM, on March the 5th and 6th to look for evidence of radio jets like those seen during the last outburst in 1985. An international team of astronomers, led by a team at the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Observatory, have discovered a new class of stars using the 64-metre radio telescope at Parkes in Australia. The discovery was published in the February 15th issue of the journal Nature. The team report the detection of 11 of these objects, all within our own Milky Way galaxy, which send out very short radio flashes, typically lasting between 2 and 30 milliseconds. Between these flashes, the stars are quiet for anything between 4 minutes and 3 hours. These new stars, known as repeating radio transients, or RATs, are thought to be related to pulsars, cosmic lighthouses which flash regularly and are the dense remnants of some types of supernovae explosions. Because they are bright for such a small fraction of time, it is thought that these objects may far outnumber ordinary pulsars. At the 2006 annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Margaret Turnbull, an astronomer at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, published a short list of stars which may be capable of supporting life. She based her results on a number of characteristics of the candidate stars, knowing what we know about our own solar system. Five of the stars are likely candidates for detecting signals from other civilizations, while a further six are likely candidates for Earth-mass planets. The Allen Telescope Array, a collection of small radio telescopes used together in the US, dedicated to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, 
It's hoped to be operational with 42 of a planned total of 350 dishes by the end of the year. And finally, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, NASA's latest mission to the Red Planet, began firing its engines for orbit insertion on Friday. When the craft completes the braking manoeuvre and attains orbit, it is expected to map the surface in unprecedented detail. A total of six instruments are on board, probing everything from underground layers to the top of the tenuous atmosphere. Radar instruments will search for water, cameras will map objects with the resolution of a desk, an infrared instrument will measure temperature and water vapour content in the atmosphere, and further cameras will monitor the Martian weather. The mission is planned to last for five years and act as a communications relay for future landers. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, Dr Helen Mason has been working in solar physics for the last 30 years, and in December she popped by for an interview about SOHO, the Solar Observatory. Stuart started off by asking her what SOHO is. Uh, SOHO was actually launched 10 years ago, so this is 10-year anniversary, so yep. it was launched in 1995, December 1995. But the preparations, of course, started quite a time before SOHO was actually launched. So uh, I was involved in the design of one of the instruments. It's the Coronal Diagnostic Spectrometer, and it's led by the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. I have actually worked on many space missions. So I've been working in solar physics for about 30 years now. So initially I worked on Skylab, which was the first space station. And then um, I worked on the Solar Maximum mission which was in the 80s, I think. <laughs> trying to remember back now. And uh, also on some of the space shuttle flights. So I've, I've worked uh, with a lot of the teams in, in NASA and in ESA. So uh, when SOHO came along, it was natural for me to work on that as well. So what can you tell us about, about the sun? My main interest in the sun is actually in the solar atmosphere and the solar corona. Right. But I'll start in the middle first. Uh, The sun's got um, a core where fusion is happening, so the energy is produced by nuclear fusion. And then it has a radiative zone, um, and then just beneath the surface it has a convection zone. The convection zone is obviously quite um, a lot of motion, a lot of kinetic energy going on there. Um, And then the photosphere and chromosphere, and then the corona. Now the corona is, is very hot, it's a million degrees whereas the surface is only 6,000. So one of the interests in my research and one of the interests in SOHO is to try and understand why that corona is so hot. And there's a very steep temperature gradient between the uh, chromosphere and the corona called the transition region. So that was leading on to one of my um, following questions, which would be why why is the corona so much hotter than the photosphere? Uh, we've got a few ideas about that now, but we haven't uh, we haven't fully solved the problem yet, I'm afraid. <laughs> so there's still a bit of work to be done on it. We know from SOHO that the magnetic field on the sun is very important. The magnetic field uh, is uh, a dipole at certain times, but it, it changes around every 11 years. So it's north, north, north and south. North and south pole change around every 11 years. And there it has an 11-year cycle of activity, and this causes a lot of activity in the solar solar atmosphere, which is measured by sunspots. So the number of sunspots you see uh, relates to the amount of activity that the sun has. And uh, the instruments on SOHO, actually, there's a whole range of instruments on SOHO. Some are studying the solar interior, so looking at small vibrations on the surface of the sun, a bit like um, seismic waves on the Earth, uh, to, to, to determine what the inside of the sun is like. And uh, in particular, 
looking at this, um, what they call the dynamo, which produces the sun's magnetic field to try and understand why it's got this 11-year cycle. And they haven't fully solved that one, although they've learned an awful lot about the in interior of the sun. But with regard to the heating, we now know that the motions in the convection zone actually, say, mix up, but uh, the magnetic surface break, the magnetic field breaks through the surface of the sun and is kind of twisted up by the convection zone. So the magnetic fields uh, in the atmosphere get um, get twisted. They get in a in a sort of high energy, highly energetic state, as it were, mm. and they want to go back to a, a quieter state or a potential state, a less energetic state. And when they do that, they can do it either by releasing massive amounts of energy, as we might have in a solar flare or a solar storm or an explosion, mm. or they can uh, do it in, in small amounts of energy. And we think that, uh, we, which we call sort of nano flares or small flares, and that um, could be um, partly what's heating the corona. What, we, what we're trying to do is to get the energy up from beneath the solar surface um, and get it up and get it released up in the corona. And we believe that the magnetic field channels that energy. How precisely the energy is channeled and released, we're still working on, on various ideas on that one. So, I mean, most of the, the data coming from Soho, um, I think the public can see on, on the Soho website, which is an amazing do. resource. It's got all the different instruments giving out the different images and things that they're you producing. See the daily image. I think I just tried a bit earlier, and it's actually on Bakeout at the moment, which I uh, Bakeout is is just for one of the instruments called uh, EIT, which is the EUV Imaging Telescope, and it, it's quite a funny story there behind that. Um, you, you may or may not know that SOHO was lost for a while, about two or three years after it was um, put into orbit. We lost it through some uh, error on, errors on the operator's part, mm -hmm. and the fact that a computer program wasn't actually commented, so he was running a program that didn't do what he thought it was doing. But anyway, it was lost for a while, uh, for several months, and we, we actually, I, I never thought we'd, we'd, we'd get the results back again. Some people had more faith. It took a long time, and in fact... Uh, it took a, a radio telescope in the end of the day, uh, Arecibo, I think, to actually find Soho. Yeah. yeah, find uh, find uh, Soho, and uh, we had to bring it back to life again. But at that stage, one side had been baked and one side had been frozen, so we didn't do a press release when we actually managed to get Soho back operating because we thought, well, maybe none of the instruments will work because they hadn't been uh, tested in the extremes that it had happened. It had, being really, really cold and really, really hot. But in fact, EIT, it does a bake-out occasionally, and what, what it, it does is removing the little bits of dirt, I guess, off the detector. But it had a really good bake-out because it was on the hot side of the sun. And when it when SOHO was switched on and EIT was switched on, actually it was working better than it ever worked because nobody had never dared bake it out that hot before. We're approaching solar minimum at the moment. Well, actually, or... we've... Uh, yeah, we've actually... We're actually in solar minimum at the right. moment. So... Uh, yeah, Soho was launched in in solar minimum in in uh, ninety five, and uh, we went we've been through a phase of, of uh, intense activity. But it's strange because although Soho is approaching solar minimum, we've had some huge flares in the in the last uh, in the last year. There's some of them. There were some big X class flares last really big, autumn, I think. Absolutely, really big X class flares on the, on the downward part of the cycle. That's actually quite unusual and quite unexpected uh, to to have that happen. 
What's well, causing that? Uh, the, the cycle does vary a little bit, but until we understand that whole dynamo cycle, no. Mm. But I was going to say we had some really, really big flares a few years back. Uh, they, they classify flares as X flares as a big flare, and I think they usually can classify up to about 24. But this, they had one that went right off the top of the scale, and they couldn't classify it at all, except by the effect it had on the Earth's environment. And they classified it something like X40, which is huge, the biggest they've ever had, I think. You're saying that it does have a, an effect on, on the Earth. Um, this, if Obviously, if a solar flare is pointed towards us, it yeah, will hit, hit our atmosphere. So it, it, what sort of effects does it actually have for us on the surface? Okay. Uh, the sun does have a... Um, the activity on the sun does have an effect on the Earth. Uh, we have... Um, I've mentioned solar flares, and they shoot particles out very fast, but there's something else called coronal mass ejections, which are huge eruptions of material, which you can see on the Soho movies, uh, if you look at the um, Lasco movies, that's a coronagraph movies, you can see the... the these coronal mass ejections shooting off. If they, they shoot off in all directions, of course, but if they're coming towards us, then they can have an effect on the Earth's environment. Of course, we're lucky in some ways because the Earth is protected by its own magnetic field or its own kind of magnetic shield. So because the particles are charged, they tend to scoot around the outside of, of the Earth. There is a continuous evaporation of particles coming from the sun called the solar wind anyway, and it has different components, but these um, coronal mass ejections can cause storms. And if they're really large, then they can actually penetrate uh, the Earth's environment or inter interact with the Earth's atmosphere, particularly in the polar regions. So that's where you'd see uh, the aurora in the polar regions, where the particles from these huge eruptions, Cause storms... They get channeled by the magnetic field. They get channeled by the, the magnetic field, that's right. Now, they, they can have beautiful, you know, aurora's a beautiful effect. Not that I've ever seen one. I'd like to see one. I've seen an eclipse, but I've never seen an aurora. So that's on my list. But they can also have uh, damaging effects, such as knocking out satellites. And some of these large ones have actually damaged uh, satellite electronics. So uh, people who are operating satellites want to be able to have some warning of when this is going to happen, because they can put the satellites into a safe mode, which enables them not to be damaged by, and of course, you know, this can cost millions. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're working on with SOHO is actually trying to understand when flares and coronal mass ejections happen, and also trying to be able to predict what type of region is going to suddenly flare and what's going to be the precursor. So there's a lot of um, work going into equal space weather, but trying to predict um, when the activity is going to take place on the sun and what's going to happen. In recent years, there have been various scientific papers published about the Earth's magnetic field and the fact that every so often it, it flips, it changes the, the orientation on the Earth the north pole of the magnet would, would go to the south pole. And at a time like that, then solar wind or, or coronal mass ejections are going to then be able to get much closer down to the I think that the if, if the Earth's um, magnetic field changes, it doesn't change too frequently, I think, it's, then it's possible that it could have some detrimental effect. There's also been suggestions that the sun might help towards global warming. Yes, the sun does have an effect on the uh, on the on the climate. It's it's well known that uh, the more the more minimum, you know, there was sort of little ice ages. Yeah. When so at that time they were able no to have ice fares on the Thames and things. Absolutely, they? very few, very few sunspots on that time. So you can correlate the activity on the sun with with the climate, but the processes involved are very complicated and. We know that the the Earth is is warming rapidly, much more rapidly than the timescales that are involved in in the solar activity cycles. So it's it's a very very small 
change that the sun is having in comparison mm. to what we're doing on Earth. Now, having said that, if you look at the visible sun, it doesn't really change very much. It's got a solar constant that we, we also monitor with SOHO and other instruments. It doesn't change very much, but actually what changes in the activity cycle is the ultraviolet or the X-ray radiation. So radiation we don't actually sort of see with our eyes. And that can affect the um, processes that are going on in the Earth's atmosphere, for example. And that, that those the complex interaction between the sun, the radiation coming from the sun and the Earth's atmosphere is something which is being studied but probably not still fully understood. Mm. Another thing that I've, I've noticed about SOHO is that um, amateurs have been making use of, of the images, amateur astronomers, um, to, to watch sunspots. Um, but they've also done a lot of other things, such as identify comets that have been going close to the sun. Absolutely, uh, yes. I mean, SOHO has been one of the greatest comet hunters. In, in, I think it's in, just <laughs> recently got up to a thousand. Thousands, altogether. I think it's clocked up now. That's right. And many of those have been discovered by amateur astronomers. So I think the fact that the images are available and that uh, amateurs can look at it, it's also a, gr a great focus for activities in schools as well, because, you know, you, you can get quite cheap sunspotters, for example, which you can use, but you can then compare uh, the sunspots or whatever you see on the sun with the SOHO images and then bring in some other ideas there. So, so yes, for um, Mature astronomers, etc. It's been quite good. I've got another funny little story actually. Um, when um, you get uh, when you get something very bright in a detector, sometimes you get a, a streak. And uh, when you, when the planets are observed with with LASCO, they've got a little blob with a streak, which looks a bit like a UFO. <laughs> and there were some people that decided that SOHO had actually observed a path of UFO. UFOs going across in front of the sun, but everybody was keeping really quiet about it. And uh, this was put forward, and actually the team at Rutherford actually actually write a a, um, a comment on it to say, no, actually they weren't UFOs. This was quite understandable. Just a, a property of the instrument, though. <laughs> Absolutely, very bright yeah, yeah. So it spills over into neighbouring pixels. Of yeah, the light. that's right. It looks like a flying saucer, really. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for talking to us. Okay, thanks for having me. And you can hear the full interview, which is 20 minutes long, on our website, which is www.jodcast.net. Now, as you may remember from last month, Nick Rattenbury is involved in part of the Jodrell Bank team, which is investigating the 5.5 Earth mass planet, which was found in January. Hannah went along to his office to find out what it was all about. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Nick Rattenbury, who is part of a team of astronomers who have recently discovered a new planet. Hi there. Hi. So Nick, this is all very exciting. Um, can you tell us a few facts about this planet? Well, yes, it is very exciting. And the simple facts about this planet is that it is a very light planet. It's a very low mass planet. It is about five and a half times the mass of the Earth. And it orbits its parent sun, its star, at about 2.6 astronomical units. And an astronomical unit, one astronomical unit, is the distance from uh, the sun to our earth so it's a it's a small it's a small planet five and a half earth mass at about 2.6 astronomical units the new planetary system okay the star and the planet are about 6.6 thousand parsecs away now that that turns into around about 20,000 light years away so it's quite some distance away okay thank you um so how do you go about finding these new planets the technique that we use is a technique called gravitational microlensing. So okay. it sounds it sounds like an awfully difficult uh, difficult subject, but it isn't. 
a simple, a simple result from Einstein's uh, theory of, of gravity is that heavy objects like a star or a planet will bend light. So light from a background object will get bent by the gravity of uh, an intervening foreground object. So in the case of our research, if you're looking at a star and uh, another star happens to be almost exactly in line with that background star, the light from the background star will be bent around the foreground star, which we call the lens star, in a way exactly like an optical lens. Mm -hmm. So the light from the background star gets bent by the uh, lens star to us here at Earth. What we see is the background star appears to get brighter. So it's very similar to taking a magnifying glass and moving it between your eye and, let's say, uh, a street lamp outside on the street. If you move that lens between you and the background lamp, you see the background lamp start to get brighter and then dimmer as you move the lens away. So that's the basic technique of gravitational microlensing. Okay, so how do you use that to find planets? How do we use it to find planets? Well, in this case, if you have a star and a planet acting as the lens, that's the uh, object between you and the background star, if that lens object, that lens system, is actually a star and a planet, what you see is a little blip, a little glitch, let's say, in the very smooth light amplification of the background source star. It's like having a, a scratch or a little chip cut out of your optical lens as you move it between your eye and the background street lamp. You see an extra spike of light as the lens star and planet moves between you and the background source star. So we're looking for that very sharp little increase in light and that's due to the planet. I see. So from this little blip, you can tell lots of things about the planet. That's right. We can tell how heavy the planet is with respect to the lens star. We can also tell how far away the planet is from its host star. So those are the two main things that we learn about the planet in gravitational lensing. OK. Now, most of the extrasolar planets I've heard about have been more like the size of Jupiter or even bigger. I suppose this is just because bigger planets are easier to detect. In this case, yes. The planets which uh, were first discovered were discovered using a different technique called radial velocity technique. And the way that works is that if you look at a star which has a planet going around the star, if the planetary system is edge on to us, the planet's gravity is pulling its host star backwards and forwards in a very regular manner. As the planet goes around the star, sometimes the planet will be pulling the star towards us and sometimes the planet will be pulling the star away from us. And if we take a very close look at the light from that star, we can tell how fast that star is being pulled away and towards us. And that tells us how heavy the planet is going around that star. Now, that technique is only sensitive to large planets, planets like uh, Jupiter or even heavier, as you say. However, the technique through which this latest discovery was made is sensitive to even lighter planets, planets getting close to the mass of the Earth.
Are most of the extrasolar planets more like the one that you've just found or more like the heavy Jupiter mass planets? Most of the planets that have been found so far are most like Jupiter. They're big, heavy, gas-like planets which orbit close to their host star. The planet that we've discovered is small, it's light, and it orbits quite some distance away from its host star. So we're looking at very different planetary systems. So is this new planetary system more the norm for all systems in the universe? We don't know. Are most planets like Jupiter or are most planets like the Earth? We don't know. Does it depend on the stars that we're looking at? We don't know. That's what we're trying to aim to, to answer. So this new planet that you found, is it the kind of planet that might support life? Is that where we should be looking? This little planet? No, unfortunately not, because it is uh, orbiting a very low mass star. It's a star which we call an M dwarf, an M dwarf star. It's smaller, it's dimmer, and it's colder than our own sun. And there is a region around uh, most stars where you could have a planet which has a solid rocky surface, similar to our Earth, which has a temperature which you could have liquid water. We believe that liquid water is absolutely necessary for harboring life. So this region around stars where you can have a stable rocky planet with liquid water on the surface is called the habitable zone. Now unfortunately the planet that we've discovered through gravitational microlensing is not in the habitable zone and this is because the star it orbits is an M dwarf star, it's cold, it's dim, so the habitable zone is quite close to the lens star, this M dwarf. The planet we've discovered is about three astronomical units away from the M dwarf star. It's almost three times further away from its host star than the Earth is away from the Sun. So the planet is likely to be very cold indeed. In fact, people estimate the temperature to be around about minus 220 degrees. So very cold indeed. Completely frozen surface. So not the kind of place anyone's going to be there. Not the kind of place you want to spend your holidays, no. Okay then. Well, thank you very much, Nick. You're welcome. Thank you, Hannah and Nick. And Nick, of course, will be back later for Ask an Astronomer. Now, it was announced at the end of January that the London Planetarium was to close and be replaced by the London Auditorium, showing a different set of stars. So I went along to the Planetarium in Birmingham, think tank at Millennium Point, which has been open now since the 17th of December, to meet the manager there, Mario DiMaggio. Okay, I'm here with Mario DiMaggio, who is the planetarium manager here at Think Tank in Birmingham. Mario, welcome to the Jodcast. Could you start off by telling us a bit about you, about your job, and about the planetarium, please? Yes, David. Um, as planetarium manager, I'm responsible for the program, the day-to-day -day running of the shows, as well as any development and production of new shows that we um, would like to do in the future. I've been at Think Tank for over a year. When I came along, there wasn't anything about astronomy in the displays. So now we have a new gallery about space exploration and, of course, the planetarium, where we emphasize quality astronomy presenter-led shows about the night sky, encouraging people to go outside and look for stars and planets and constellations um, from their own back gardens. I grew up in South Africa, and South Africa only received television in 1973. And I remember watching television, and there was this distinguished gentleman 
speaking about the sky tonight, and it was Patrick Moore, of course, and I was captivated. I thought that was really good. But then later in high school, I watched uh, Cosmos by Carl Sagan, and that's when I decided, wow, this is for me, this is what I want to do. Yet, when I reached university, I discovered that uh, my mathematics and my physics wasn't really up to scratch to pursue astrophysics, so I settled uh, with biology, which I also enjoyed. Then I ended up in a museum, the museum profession, natural history museums, science centers, and I've worked my way into the planetarium field because with me, stars are still my first love. And even though I haven't been able to become an astrophysicist, I do enjoy communicating my love and passion for the stars with, with the public. What makes the Think Tank Planetarium special? Well, the Think Tank Planetarium is Britain's first purpose-built digital planetarium. The image on the dome is produced by six high-resolution, very bright data projectors, and each projector is run by a PC. There is a PC for sound, and then there is the host PC, so... Eight PCs in total power the planetarium. The operating system is called Digistar 3, produced by Evans and Sutherland. I would say at the moment it is the leading operating system, although there are others that are catching up fast. So the competition is good, it's healthy, and it's really amazing what you can do with these systems. The theater itself is a 10-meter diameter dome with 70 seats. I personally think it will turn out to be far too small for a city the size of Birmingham. Only time will tell, but I think in the future there will be pressure for the city to establish a bigger planetarium. Planetariums around the world are changing. In fact, we expect that over the next few years the name planetarium will be dropped because planetariums are no longer just about stars. Within a dome we can project content on any subject we wish. Um, entertainment content as well. So it is being suggested that planetariums will be called immersive cinemas or immersive theatres because the cinema screen is all around us, all around the audience. So having Britain's first purpose-built digital planetarium is a real boon for Birmingham. It also happens to be Birmingham's first ever planetarium. The first proposal to build a planetarium in Birmingham was tabled in 1930 or so. And that was very forward-thinking for the city because planetariums were invented in 1923. So less than 10 years after the invention of the planetarium, the city wanted to acquire one. It's taken over three-quarters of a century, but finally it's here, and it's a really exciting, high-quality digital one. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, OK, so we've got immersive cinema... And this is something that the London Planetarium has decided to do. They've, they've decided to change and become uh, a show for a different kind of star. What, what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting what's happened to London. As I said, with digital theatres, it is now possible to project a, a wide variety of content on the dome. London Planetarium did upgrade to digital a few years back, it's happening all around the world. Planetariums are upgrading from traditional to digital, which means it becomes easier to show content other than astronomy. And what's happened with London, because it's now so easy to um, put on spectacular showbiz-type content on the dome, 
they've dropped astronomy altogether, which is sad because London now becomes um, probably the only major city in the world without a planetarium. Um, it is sad, but I think that the void will be filled sooner or later by a proper planetarium being built in London. Could you tell us a little bit more about the shows that you put on here, please? Yes, basically there are two types. The emphasis um, of our program is on presenter-led shows, where you have a presenter talking about the stars as they are seen tonight, encouraging people to go out and look for easy-to-spot naked-eye objects, and those receive the best feedback from audiences because the audience warms to the presenter and they ask questions that are on their minds, and then we leave them with a free leaflet as a reminder of what they've seen so they can go home and try it for themselves. The other kind of show is a cinema-style automated show that we purchase, and they can be quite spectacular because as I said, they fill the dome, the image is moving all around you, you're in the center of the action. And um, the third type of show that we are still planning is entertainment. Um, visuals set to music. It's something new that new digital planetariums are attempting. And we want to be in the forefront, we want to try and encourage visitors to come after hours to enjoy entertainment shows in our planetarium as well. We, we try and keep our shows low on facts and more on inspiration, um, motivation, getting people to connect with the stars and inspire them and um, go out and try these things for themselves. And then, of course, if we spark an interest, they will then pick up the facts themselves and join astronomy societies or whatever. And finally, is it worth coming along to see the shows here? Oh yes, I definitely think it's worth coming along and uh, I know that in time the visitor feedback will, will prove that. The presenter-led shows are particularly special because very few planetariums today are still delivering, uh, offering these traditional shows about the night sky and we are very fortunate because we have real astronomers on the staff actually speaking to the audiences and very few planetariums offer that. I just want to add that one drawback of this digital revolution in planetariums is that it's become so easy just to play back a show, press a button, and buy an off-the-shelf show. The planetariums are neglecting the traditional star shows, and that's one thing we definitely don't want to do here at Think Tank. I think they will always be top of our list. Mario, thank you very much. Thank you, David. And now it's over to Nick Rattenbury with Tim O'Brien for Ask an Astronomer. Okay, and welcome to Ask an Astronomer, the segment where we put your questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien. And so thanks for uh, answering questions again, being in the firing line. That's all right. Uh, the first question is, very simple, how many stars are there in the universe? Okay, a very easy question it's to answer. It's a simple question. <laughs> easy one to start us off. Right. Well, the way to work this out is to, um, to first of all, remember that stars are grouped together in large groupings that we call galaxies uh, and our, our galaxy is the Milky Way galaxy and it's a fairly typical one um, in a galaxy like the Milky Way there are maybe a hundred thousand million stars a hundred thousand million stars that's right okay a hundred billion in new units um, and uh, so that's basically a one followed by eleven zeros 
if you can think about that number, writing that number down. So it's quite a large number of stars, even in one, even in one galaxy. And that would be that's in a galaxy like our own, that's in the Milky Way. Absolutely. But yeah. all of the galaxies are the same, are they? No, that's true. There are there are some galaxies that are larger and some galaxies that are smaller. Um, there's, uh, I, I think, if we were working for working out this calculation, we can probably take the Milky Way as a fairly typical size, just to give us a, a way of doing the calculation. Okay, that's simple, good. Okay, um, and then what we want to do is think about the fact that in fact our, our Milky Way galaxy is not the only galaxy in the universe, there are many other galaxies in there, so we need some estimate of how many galaxies there are in the universe. Um, one of the ways in which that's been done is to is to use the Hubble Space Telescope to um, to say take a very long exposure photograph of a, of a small section of sky and count the galaxies in it and then you could imagine multiplying up that number across the whole sky to try and get an estimate for how many galaxies there might be in the universe. That's one way of thinking about it. Okay. And the, and the number that comes out from that is is actually very similar. It's actually that there's about 100,000 million galaxies in the universe. So, so there are as many galaxies in the universe as there are stars in one galaxy. Absolutely, that's right. So, in fact, you have to multiply those two numbers together then to get the answer for how many stars there are in the universe. So you have to multiply 100,000 million by 100,000 million. Which is? <laughs> um, the, answer <laughs> to that, the answer to that is one followed by 22 zeros. One followed by 22 zeros. So that's yeah. a fun thing to do on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> is just get a pen and a piece of paper and write down one in 22 zeros. And that's the number of stars in our universe. That's right. It's actually 10,000 billion billion stars. 10,000 billion billion stars in our universe. There you go. Thank you very much. No <laughs> Perfect problem. answer. <laughs> the next question in our Ask an Astronomer for this month is, how long will it take for the two Magellanic clouds to collide and merge with our Milky Way galaxy? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> right, okay. I think we need to set up the scene a little bit here. And uh, Yes. First of all, perhaps answer the question what are the Magellanic Clouds? If what are the Magellanic Clouds? Yes. Yeah okay so in fact the, the, the name originates from Magellan and Magellan was it's Ferdinand Magellan who was the Portuguese explorer uh, and what he's famous for is is being or at least the, the, he led a team that were the first uh, Europeans, the first people to circumnavigate the globe and in that voyage they traveled through the southern oceans so they went so, very far south. That's right, to make it round, uh, you know, round the bottom of the of the globe there to, when they were circumnavigating it. So uh, what was in one of the interesting things that happened on that voyage was they obviously looked at the southern skies. They were the first yeah, Europeans to make a sort of study of what they could see in the southern skies. And um, one of the interesting things they saw there were these so-called Magellanic clouds, which looked like clouds in the night sky, fuzzy fuzzy objects. Uh, in fact, there are two galaxies, two dwarf galaxies. Um, rather close to our Milky Way, sort of orbiting the Milky Way, in fact. Um, about the large Magellanic cloud, cloud is about a tenth the uh, uh, mass of the uh, of the Milky Way galaxy, so about a tenth the number of stars. Right. So, so these are small companion galaxies to the Milky Way, That's orbiting right. the Milky Way. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so the question was about about those those when are they going to merge with the Milky Way? You know, they're going to collide and merge with the Milky Way. Um, I think uh, the answer to that is actually that that's not really going to happen. Um, they're actually sort of on an orbit around the Milky Way, if you like. Uh, and in particular, radio astronomers, in fact, have done some studies of this, um, even relatively recently, using 
receivers on their telescopes that are sensitive to uh, radiation from hydrogen atoms which lie between the stars and with that you can see that in fact these Magellanic clouds are basically being torn apart um, by the gravitational force of the Milky Way so they're sort of being ripped apart so in fact I think before one, one could think about them colliding and merging with the Milky Way actually what's happening is the Milky Way is sort of destroying these, these right. uh, little, little neighbour galaxies that's not very friendly, is not it? Very not very neighbourly. Not very neighbourly at all, I'm afraid. But that, that's the fate of the uh, of the Magellanic Cloud. You get too close to the Milky Way and you get ripped, ripped apart. apart. You ripped apart. Right, I yeah. see. So the galaxies themselves, these Magellanic Clouds, how many are there? There's there's, there's two of them. There's just there's, two. There's, yeah, there's the small Magellanic Cloud and the large Magellanic Cloud. And they're, they're two of the larger... Um, uh, the so-called dwarf irregulars. That's the that's dwarf irregulars, which is again not not particularly nice for them to be irregular galaxies. Uh, and it's basically because they've got no the the two main types of galaxy are the spiral galaxy and the elliptical galaxy. The spirals are sort of disc-like, they're like a flattened disc uh, with spiral arms, and the Milky Way is uh, is one of those. And we also got elliptical galaxies that that uh, we think are made by spiral galaxies colliding. Um, and, and then you get this sort of almost like a, a rugby ball type um, distribution of stars that are sort of on random orbits around the centre rather than being in a disk. But these these are so-called irregulars. They don't fit into either. They're not really big enough to, to, to be these sort of disk galaxies. like the They don't have a definite shape like a, a spiral or yeah. a rugby ball. Or that's, galaxy. that's right. Yeah, they're just sort of random distribution of stars, really. So the answer is... How well to the question? How long will it take for these two Magellanic clouds to collide and merge with our Milky Way galaxy? Is never. Yeah. It would. They will never. They will never merge. Yeah. The best slowly being ripped apart. Yeah. I mean, there is a a sort of corollary to that, which is is that there is a galaxy which is going to collide and merge with our Milky Way galaxy, and that's the Andromeda galaxy, um, which is our nearest large uh, companion spiral galaxy. Um, It's actually about Two million light years away, uh, so light the light that we see from it has taken two million years to get here. Right. You can actually see that with the naked eye, so without the aid of a telescope. Um, and it's the it's actually the most distant thing you can see with the naked eye. So if you're interested in somebody says how far can you see? In fact, you can see two million light years away, uh, and in fact two million light years into the past by finding the Andromeda galaxy in the, in the constellation of Andromeda. That's actually heading towards us um, at about. Um, 500,000 kilometres an hour. That's a fair clip. Yes, it's racing along towards us. That's very high speed, but it's a long way away. So it's going to take a while for it to get here. It will, in fact, if you work out the numbers, take about 3 billion years. 3 billion years. And it sounds like an awfully long time, but on the scale of things, that's yeah. that's actually quite soon, really, yeah. isn't it? On an astronomical scale, that's sometimes quite surprising, actually, when you realise that that's the case, because we're often used to couching sort of these sort of things in terms of how long is it going to be before the sun dies, the sun expands to become a red giant, uh, and the answer to that is five billion years. So I, so it's very interesting to imagine that, in fact, our Milky Way galaxy is going to collide with another galaxy of a similar size before the sun dies. So, you know, if we're, if anything like us is living on a planet orbiting orbiting the sun um, around that time, we'll actually see this 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 giant galaxy gradually. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> and it's going to fill the whole sky. You'll basically get two two Milky Ways. An awesome sky. yet uh, somewhat disturbing thought. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And and again, I mean, the interesting thing there is that is that when they do collide, um, you know, you sort of have this picture in your head that maybe stars are going to smash into each other. Mm. Um, is that possible? Well, it's possible, mm. but in fact, it's quite unlikely because right. it turns out that the gaps between stars are so huge compared to the size of the stars themselves 
that the chances are that when two galaxies collide, they actually um, they actually go through each other. They effectively pass through each other. So fit together like two sort of cones, perhaps they say, sort of fitting together. Yeah, that's right. So some... you, the stars are just going to head between the gaps between the stars in the other galaxies. So it all just passes through each other. Now that doesn't mean to say they just go through each other and then head on the merry way off into space, separating again. Because what will happen is that the force of gravity between the two will be such that the stars will sort of loop around each other. Uh, and so the, the galaxies end up in orbit around one another and then maybe they close back together and pass through one another again. And over a period of about a billion years um, after the initial uh, collision, um, the two galaxies will actually merge. And what we think you'll get as a result of that, sort of our, cal our computer calculations indicate that what you get as a result of that is an elliptical galaxy. So you get two... Uh, two spiral galaxies turning into one elliptical galaxy yeah. by merging together. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And so when we look around in the sky and we see elliptical galaxies, that is our uh, current idea concerning the origin of elliptical galaxies, is, is that they're made from the merger of spiral galaxies. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much uh, to Tim O'Brien. Thank you for answering these questions no again problem. for us. And you can ask your questions. Uh, send email to Jodcast Ask an Astronomer. That's one word at jb.man.ac.uk. That's Jodcast Ask an Astronomer at jb.man.ac.uk. Just remains for me to thank Tim O'Brien once again. Thank you very much. Okay. And send those questions in and we'll answer them. Bye for now. And now to tell us what to look out for in the March skies, here's Ian Morrison. The night sky this March. Let's first have a look at the constellations that you can easily see. If you start observing soon after dusk, perhaps about seven or eight o'clock, then in the south, moving a bit towards the southwest, you'll see the wonderful constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars that make up his belt are wonderful pointers to some of the other constellations nearby. If you track down to the lower left, you'll see the very bright star Sirius, the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major. If you track up to the right, you first come to the constellation of Taurus, and within that, a lovely cluster of stars called the Hyades. There's a bright red star there called Aldebaran. It looks as though it's part of the Hyades cluster. It's actually much brighter and only about half as far away. Moving up to the left of Orion we come to Gemini, the twins, with two bright stars, Castor and Pollux. Over to the left of Gemini is Cancer. It's a very faint constellation, but at the moment there's something there that actually is quite bright. We'll talk about in a minute or two. As the evening moves on, Taurus and Orion set in the west, and towards the south you'll see the constellation of Leo the Lion. It's a constellation that actually looks rather like what it is, if you imagine the lion's in Trafalgar Square. Its brightest star at the bottom, what's called the sickle, the head and the front of the Leo of Leo, is called Regulus. And then further over still, but in fact relatively faint, is rising the constellation of Virgo. And the brightest star there is called Spica. That won't really be above the horizon until perhaps midnight. If you now look upwards in the region around what is called the zenith, you will probably see early on a bright yellowish star. It's called Capella. 
Moving further northwards, in fact almost overhead later in the night, is the wonderful constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The stars that stand out form what we call the plough. The Americans call it the Big Dipper, a ladle used by farmhouse wives giving out soup and bread to the farm workers at lunchtime. The two brightest of those stars, Merak and Dubhe, are called the pointers because they point towards Polaris, which is currently the pole star and shows where the north celestial pole is in the sky. Later on, around midnight, the constellation of Bootes is moving up towards the zenith with the bright star Arcturus. But unless you've gone to bed pretty late, that'll be appearing up in the eastern sky. Now let's have a look and see where the planets are going to be this month. Let's first take Mars. At the end of February, it was very close to the Pleiades cluster in Taurus. It's moving westwards, and by March the 16th, halfway through, it'll actually lie between Aldebaran in the Hyades and Capella in Auriga towards the zenith. So you'll see a second red object not far from Aldebaran. Moving over through Gemini to Cancer lies Saturn, very close to the beehive cluster, sometimes called Praesipi. So that's two planets that you can easily see in the evening. Saturn, the rings are still well open, and it's well worth getting a small telescope to have a look for yourself. It's a wonderful sight. If one stays up somewhat later, one can observe Jupiter. It's now in the constellation of Libra, beyond Virgo. At the beginning of the month, it rises at about midnight. But as the month moves on, it rises earlier. By the end of the month, you could see it from about 10.30 to 11 o'clock. I suspect at some point one will go to bed. But if you do wake up at around 6 o'clock in the morning, and it's clear in the east, you cannot fail to see the planet Venus. At magnitude minus 4.5, it's the brightest object apart from the moon in the sky. And of course the sun in daytime. So it's well worth having a look. A small telescope will show the phases of Venus. Very like the moon. It was Galileo's observations of those phases that proved that Venus went around the sun, as in the Copernican system, and not in a circle between the Earth and the sun, as in the Ptolemaic. Now, there are two relatively unusual events in the sky this month. On the night of the 14th to 15th of March, the moon will suffer a partial eclipse. No part of it will be totally eclipsed, which means it's actually in the Earth's umbra, the full shadow of the Earth, but it will in fact pass through what is called the penumbra and should look surprisingly and unusually dark, somewhere around one o'clock in the morning. So that might be worth staying up for. And that's the night of the 14th to 15th of March. Now, in fact, lunar eclipses and solar eclipses tend to come two weeks apart, because that's how long it takes the moon to move round between the sun and ourselves to the opposite side. And two weeks later, on the 29th of March, in fact, there will be a total solar eclipse seen 
across North Africa, Egypt, Turkey and beyond. But we will in fact in the UK see a partial eclipse. Although it's not a major one, at best in the south of England about 17.6% of the sun's surface will be covered. So unless in fact one specifically tries to observe it, you won't really know it's happened. Now the first thing to say is you must never directly look at the sun with your eyes or any optical instrument. You could cause permanent blindness if you do so. There are only two safe ways to do it. The first thing is to project an image of the sun, perhaps with a pinhole at one end of a shoebox, projecting an image onto perhaps a white card stuck at the other end. That works very well. You can make the pinhole by taking a piece of foil and just pricking a pin into it and sticking that in front of a larger hole that you've made at one end of the box. So that's a good thing to do. You could use a small pair of binoculars, the little baby 8x20s. One half of those would actually make quite a good image. And you could hold them, in fact, just in front of a piece of card, but do not ever, ever look through them. And the only other safe way to observe an eclipse is to have special safety glasses, and they must have a CE mark, CE mark, that says they've been fully tested and will be quite safe. So if you do try and look at the sun, do wear those glasses. Without, you could seriously and perhaps permanently damage your eyes. But nevertheless, it is a chance to see a partial eclipse, and they don't come, in fact, very often. The next one's actually going to be on the 1st of August 2008. It's a good month to observe the sky. I do hope you enjoy doing so. Thanks for that, Ian, and you'll hear more from him next month. Also, I'd like to take this opportunity to advertise another of my podcasts, that being the Think Tank Planetarium podcast. I and my colleague John Morgan at the Planetarium have recorded a planetarium show that you can take outside on your MP3 player. So I encourage you to go to the Think Tank website at www.thinktank.ac and download that and go outside and have a listen. Or you could just come along to the Think Tank Planetarium in Birmingham, if you're anywhere near. So that brings us to the end of this month's Jodcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please send all of your questions for Ask an Astronomer, any comments or suggestions, to the usual address that you can find on our website, which is, as I said before, www.jodcast.net. So now it just remains for me to thank Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Hannah Thrall, Megan Argo, Tim O'Brien and Ian Morrison. The voices for the intro and outro were provided by my colleagues at darkerprojects.com. Chris Montero was the captain, and Ali Hirschman and Steve Anderson. No attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Star Trek, which of course remains the property of Paramount Pictures. So, tune in next month for more news and interviews, and send in your questions and comments. We do read and appreciate them all. Thanks for listening. This is David Alt, signing off. Goodbye. Closed channel and arm photon torpedoes. Fire at will. But, sir, I... Why waste an opportunity for a bad joke? <laughs>